I've been thinking a lot lately that I need, I'm feeling kind of pent up. I need a new hobby, right? So I've been looking on YouTube and I've been, I've discovered this thing, archery. And I'm thinking, that's kind of cool. Has anybody ever done archery before? Few people done archery? Yeah? They got some cool YouTube videos. Have you ever tried it blindfolded? If you haven't, you don't know what you're missing. Get it? Blindfold mess. This is probably a good time. This is probably a good time for me to mention that the decorative rocks that are outside the building are just that decorative. Okay, they're not meant to be weaponized against corny teachers. Okay. So, anyway, this morning is. Uh, I just discovered this this morning, so it's kind of you know it's like wow, how did I miss that? Pentecost. Today is actually Pentecost. And for those of you that don't know what Pentecost is, um, it actually goes back to uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish observation of what's called Shavuot, which is the counting of Omer, the days from, from Passover until the feast of Shavuot, which is first fruits or feast of weeks. Okay, And they would gather in Israel to celebrate the first fruits. It would be when the first crops would come in. It was commanded to them by the law of Moses. And it was during that time that the early church was also gathered in Jerusalem for that celebration when the Holy Spirit came upon them and everyone present and did miracles and wonders and gave them speech in other languages. And it really commemorated the ministry of the church going forward to proclaim the gospel, the good news of our salvation. And although that isn't exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning, it definitely, that ministry of the Holy Spirit underlines, it highlights, it italicizes everything that we're going to talk about this morning. So... Let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we come before you, Lord, um, as your children with humble hearts. Father, we just pray that you would minister to us this morning through your word. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to heal us, to teach us. Bring to life the words of your scripture, Lord the story of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be talking about the ultimate love in the universe. We'll be taking a look at the letter of Ephesians, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. Now, we've got a little bit of a technological problem this morning, so the uh, verses won't be up on the screen. You're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way with either your Bible or uh, if you have an app on your phone, or you can take my word for it. <laughs> Not recommended, but if it's all you got, okay. So um, I'd like to uh, start by um, just having you make your way there in the Bible um, while I'm talking. And I'll begin to do a little background and introduction to the letter of Ephesians. So the letter to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus and really to all believers everywhere. 
He wrote this letter in 61 AD, and it's believed it was written from Rome. Unlike some of the letters which were written to address a problem or correct false doctrine, um, this letter was written to explain some of the great themes and doctrines of our faith. He talks about the nature and the purpose of the church as the body of Christ. The overriding theme of this letter is to remind us of God's love and sacrifice and the unifying power of Christ. And isn't that something we could all use right now? Chapter 1, Paul began with uh, an introduction of himself as the author and addressing the recipients of the letter, referring to them as saints or faithful in Christ Jesus. He talked about the spiritual blessings believers have in Christ. Paul praises God for choosing believers before the foundation of the world, predestining them to be adopted as sons and daughters. Paul expresses his thanksgiving for the Ephesians. He, um, he commends their faith and their love. He prays for them, asking God to grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may grow in their understanding of God. He also highlights the power of God demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him as head over all things for the church. He continues to elaborate on the supremacy and the authority of Christ. He explains that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all powers and authorities, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul emphasized that Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Chapter 1 lays a foundation for the rest of the book. It, it emphasizes the believer's identity in Christ, the spiritual blessings they have received, and the power and authority of Jesus as the head of the church. It sets the stage for Paul's further teaching on the amazing and ultimate love found only in God and this wonderful salvation given to us in Christ. So with that, we're going to zero in on chapter 2, verse 1, and see what the Lord has to say. We start in verse 1, and verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. All right, we're dead. What a great way to start this, huh? You were dead. Paul begins by reminding them and us of our previous spiritual state as non-believers. He begins by emphasizing our former condition. We were dead spiritually. The phrase you were dead indicates a state of spiritual death. And before coming to faith in Christ, everyone is spiritually separated from God, and we are unable to have a genuine relationship with him. This spiritual death is the result of the trespasses or sins referred to as our disobedience and rebellion against God. Sin creates a barrier between humanity and God, leading to spiritual death. Paul's purpose in highlighting this spiritual death is to emphasize the desperate need we all have for salvation. Without God's intervention, humanity is trapped. We're trapped in sin, separated from the life-giving presence of God. The spiritual deadness brings about the consequences of sin, such as feeling spiritually empty, 
guilt, a life dominated by self-centeredness, worldly desires, all the endless evil we see in the world around us. It's important to note this verse is speaking about the universal condition of humanity before coming to faith. Not just the Ephesians specifically, it highlights the common experience shared by all people, regardless of our background or our culture. Paul uses this vivid language to illustrate the contrast between the hopeless state of spiritual death and the transformative power of God's grace. It reveals the spiritual condition of every single human being before they come to faith in Christ. It communicates a state of spiritual death resulting from transgressions and sin, highlighting the need for salvation and the transformative power of God's grace. So let's go to verse 2 and 3. It says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These verses further describe the influence of spiritual death, portraying a life dominated by following in the ways of the world, the devil, and one's own fleshly desires. Disobedience was the beginning of humanity's spiritual death. His disobedience to the will of God goes all the way back to the garden. In the garden, the first humans were only given one prohibition by God, one. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A lot of interest and emphasis has been put on the nature and of the importance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What exactly was that tree's fruit? Was it, was it like an apple? That's the, the image that we normally have portrayed, right? That it's an apple. But I think to focus on that really misses the bigger point. It could have actually been anything. Genesis 3, 4, and 5 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The point is, they disobeyed and disregarded the will of God. Furthermore, they chose to believe Satan instead. They didn't trust God's motivation and his word. The prince of power of the air in Ephesians 2 and 2 and the serpent of Genesis 3, 4 are both descriptions of what's understood to be Satan, the great deceiver and tempter. And it's also important to note, Satan didn't compel them to disobey. You've heard the old saying, the devil made me do it. Well, he didn't make us. Okay. That choice was theirs alone. He only lied and tempted them. 
Tragically, this initiated a cascade effect of generational sin that infects the entire human race. We are simply plagued by death that results from our inheritance of sin and our, pre, our own predisposition to add to it. A perfect, righteous, and holy God, think about this, a perfect, righteous, and holy God cannot abide or uh, can't abide sin or disobedience in his presence. Spiritual separation, death, was the only judgment that could justly be rendered. This also meant physical death as well. We humans, we are all bad copies of bad copies of bad copies. We live in a world that was once like, think of it as like a glassy still pond, now punctuated by our sin, little pebbles dropping into that still pond, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, scripture said. So like stones dropped in this still, tranquil water, creating our own ripples, which bump into other ripples, and again into others, turning the once still pond into a frothy torrent of waves crashing into each other. That's what this world of sin is that we've created. Each of those waves causing destruction and death in the lives of ourselves and others, and even disturbing the very natural world around us. And for all of this, Humanity has reaped death. Doubt these words? Just simply turn on your TV at 5 o'clock to the news. Well, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Better not to. Verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. What a beautiful follow-up. But God, what a beautiful beginning to the next two verses. But God, not us, all him. Through, though our God is perfect and holy, he is also merciful and the very definition of love. It is as much a part of his nature as perfection and holiness. He loves all of us so much that even though we were dead in our sins, he makes us, that is, believers who trust in him, alive together with Christ. Let's notice a few things here about God's nature. First, we're told he's rich in mercy. Mercy is not, there's a lot of Biblical words here, we don't really think about what they mean. Mercy is one of those. What, is, what, is actually, what exactly does that mean? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Titus 3.5 tells us, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you get the Holy Spirit in here from Pentecost. <laughs> Next, God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then 
by grace. Grace, another one of those words. By grace we are saved. Grace means getting good things we don't deserve. John 1, verses 16 and 17 tells us, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's this grace which saves us from the justice we deserve. Be careful. Be careful when we ask for or demand justice. We really don't want justice. Though God is perfect, righteous, and holy, a nature that demands perfect justice, these attributes are also juxtaposed with mercy, love, and grace, also very much who he is. So how does he satisfy both natures, and what was the cost? Well, regarding the nature of God, first let's consider God is community. God is community. He has always existed in community. I heard this from another pastor who, I'm, who I very much respect, and I had never given that much consideration. He has always existed in community with the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same in essence, each having perfect and eternal relationship with the other. The Bible tells us there is one God who, who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in person. Three definitions express four critical truths here. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. Each communicates and relates to the other. There is only one God. I know that's pretty hard for us to wrap our heads around because if you and I, because you and I aren't made that way, and in fact, if we were, we'd probably be in counseling right now. But because God is, it explains why community is such a fundamental aspect of who he is. So the problem, as holy and righteous, God's perfect justice requires that the price for our disobedience be our own physical and spiritual death. The problem is the very reason for our creation, fellowship and community with God, is lost with our destruction. Furthermore, we can only satisfy that justice with our own death for our own sin. We can't satisfy God's justice for anyone but ourselves. The solution. The solution was God himself would need to pay the price if we were to be restored to life. If we were to live, God's perfect justice required a man, an unstained man, one without sin and blameless, living a life like ours, tempted in every way that we are, and yet not sinning, who would feel the bitter, the bitter agony of death as each of us do, to be mocked, 
and tormented and tortured, having all the sins of the world heaped upon his innocent, perfect life and paid for by him in our place, a substitute. Even while we were still sinning against him in the most disgusting and vile ways. So what was the effect? And while he was suffering this humiliation and torment and death, God, clothed in human flesh, for the first time experiencing the unbearable and excruciating agony of being alone, he who had in eternity past partook in perfect communion with himself, was truly alone. And as he took on the sins of the world in death, the Father looked away from him in silence. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Mark 15, 34. Jesus saying these words underscored the words of Isaiah in his prophecy. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, 2. And it showed us he completely accepted his role in our salvation. Billy Graham put it this way. What did he mean by this? Was he suddenly filled with doubt, wondering if he had misunderstood the mission God had given him? Or was he filled with despair, concluding he was a failure and all his work was in vain? After all, some have said, the crowds had turned against him and seemingly his ministry had come to an abrupt end. But in reality, his words point to something far different. They point to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, all our sins, without exception, were transferred to him. He was without sin, for he was God in human flesh. But as he died, all our sins were placed on him, and he became the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. And in that moment, he was banished from the presence of God, for sin cannot exist in God's presence. His cry speaks of the truth. He endured the separation from God that you and I deserve. This is a profound truth, and yet it also should bring us great comfort. Because Christ died for us, we need not fear death or hell or judgment. The Bible says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Can you imagine how horrible he who had never been separated from the Father, the God of the universe, did that for you and for me? We who never deserved it, and while he was doing it, were still sinning against him. This is the love of God. This is God's love for us. This is how much God loves you, and it gives new meaning to that often quoted verse in John 3, 16, 16 and 17, actually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the, or, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen. 
the result. Verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Giving us richly what we don't deserve, grace. Unlike in the beginning with the first two humans, when we accept God's grace and believe, we are saved and raised to life. We are no longer spiritually dead. We read in the Bible that through the power of God's word, Jesus raised three people to life who had died. The widow's son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, and his good friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. Our Lord Jesus spoke the word and it gave life. These are the beautiful pictures of the spiritual life and resurrection we receive when a lost person hears God's word, responds in faith, and is transformed to eternal life from the dead. But it doesn't just end there. The words say God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So after all of this, Paul reminds us once again, our salvation is an act of grace on God's part. Getting something good we don't deserve. This grace is imparted to us through our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. It has nothing, 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 nothing at all to do with what we contribute. Apart from believing and trusting in him, there is nothing that we can do to earn that. It is strictly a gift from God. There is no good thing that we can do to earn our salvation. For many people, that's a difficult thing to accept. We live in a world that's based on merit, right? We get promoted at job if we do, or at work if we do a good job. Um, good things come to people who do good things, right? I mean, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the, the mantra we're taught from childhood about you know, life in this world. Those who tend to reject the message of the cross tend to fall into one of three groups, I think. There's those that refuse to recognize and acknowledge that they're in need of salvation, right? I'm a member of the good guy club, right? I'm a good guy. I, I don't, you know, I do, I do more good than bad. You know, I'm a decent human being. I pay my taxes. I'm a good guy, right? Um, there's those that think they need to earn it because that's the way the world around them works, right? It's a works-based reward system that we live within. And then there's those that don't want to be beholding to anyone for their salvation. They want to meet God on their terms. All three of these views deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. God clearly tells us we are all in need of his saving grace. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Think about that. The minute we think we have anything to do with our salvation, we diminish what Jesus did on the cross. The minute we think we have anything to do with our salvation, we diminish his work. We're either telling God, no thanks, I got this, or worse yet, God, you owe me. God forbid we have these thoughts. We are nothing and we owe you everything. We have nothing to boast about. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The verb created here is the Greek word tizo, and it, it's used in reference to God because God is the only one who truly can create. He created the universe and everything that is, the very reality that we live in. So if anyone is in Christ, they truly are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The good, works we do once, uh, the good works we do once we have received the gift of life in Christ is then acceptable and pleasing and good and holy to the Lord. It works, it's work done with a grateful heart, motivated by the Holy Spirit, infused with the love of God and in accordance with God's will. Those are the works that are attributed to us, not for salvation, only for doing God's will and work after we've been saved. In conclusion, this passage really, it reveals the richness of God's mercy and his love. In his immeasurable grace, the Bible presents us a powerful examination of humans' spiritual condition the transformation brought about by God's grace and the purpose for which we were saved. This passage began by depicting the sorry state of humanity, emphasizing that we were once spiritually dead, bound by sin and enslaved to the desires of our flesh. But it highlights the universal need for God's redemption and underscores the, the serious nature of our separation from God and how he intervened to rescue us from such a helpless state. Through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, a divine transaction took place. We who were dead in sin were made alive in Christ, experiencing a profound spiritual rebirth. It's through God's divine love, his mercy and his grace that we find salvation, not by our own works or merit, but purely by his unmerited favor. I also want us to notice this passage emphasizes that our salvation is not a result of our efforts or achievements. We cannot boast about our own righteousness or good deeds, for they alone can't save us. Instead, we are reminded that we are good, that we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus. We are his handiwork, crafted with purpose and intention. God has prepared good works for us, good works for us to walk in. 
enabling us to bear fruit that brings glory to God. As recipients of God's grace, we're called to live in unity and in love, demonstrating the transformative power of the gospel in this world. Ultimately, this passage is a powerful reminder of God's immense love and transformative nature of his grace. It invites us to reflect on our own spiritual condition and acknowledging our need for salvation. It inspires gratitude for God's unmerited favor and motivates us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. May we embrace this truth allowing its message to shape our understanding of salvation and spur us on to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word is so powerful, and when I reflect on the true sacrifice made for me, Lord, and for all of us, I'm in awe. I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. Um, Father, we just come to you um, humbly, reverently, tearfully, and express to you, Lord, our gratefulness for the love that you've shown us. Lord, help us to live a, a life worthy of the calling that you've given us. Holy Spirit is as we commemorate um, Pentecost, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, motivate us in a powerful way, infuse us with all the tools necessary, Lord, to carry out your work and to bring you glory, just as you did. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.